All right, welcome, welcome. Welcome to those of you who are in, in attendance here in this room and those of you who are participating online. This is a Facebook Live um, <laughs> colloquium. Students, if you have not already done so, you need to sign in to receive engage points and then at the end of the session, you need to sign back out again. So um, if you need to sign in, it's out there. Um, what's a colloquium at EMU? Colloquium um, provides a space for us as a community to hear current research findings, learn about artistic and creative works, and research informed developments through interdisciplinary engagement. Colloquium also provides time for us to hear from our faculty across the university and to ask questions that deepen our understanding. At the end of this presentation, um, by Dr. Rittenhouse, we'll have a time for a quick uh, Q&A. Rhonda Rittenhouse will walk around with this microphone, so please wait until she gets to you with the microphone to ask your questions so that it can be picked up and heard on Facebook Live. Um, so think about your questions, right? So you're prepared to ask Kathy questions at the end. Um, please stick around and join us for a reception out at the top of this space um, <clears throat> and enjoy a conversation. So it is my great pleasure and honor to get to introduce one of the faculty within my school. So Catherine Rittenhouse has taught as an um, associate professor in our undergraduate nursing program for more than 15 years, both in the classroom and in clinical settings. She recently um, assumed the position of director of our Master's of Science in Nursing program. And she graduated from EMU, then it was EMC, um, in 1982 with a bachelor's degree in nursing. Um, from the University of Pennsylvania, she earned a master's degree in nursing, specializing in women's health as a nurse practitioner. And very recently, she graduated from EMU with a doctor of nursing practice. I got to shake her hand as she walked across the stage and give her her hood. She has great clinical experience in critical care nursing um, and re re reproductive health in a variety of settings. She has a special interest in health promotion among our undergraduate students. Today, she will give a talk that is based on the research she did for her DMP. And I'm really honored for us to greet Dr. Rittenhouse. Well, thank you very much for attending. Um, as Tara said, this presentation is about my project for my doctoral work um, that I just recently finished. Um, the title is Improving Chlamydia and Gonorrhea Testing on a College Campus, and that college campus was here at EMU. Um, so my project was done here at EMU. So objectives for the talk today are up here. Um, I'm going to describe the project that I did. I'm going to identify the need for chlamydia and gonorrhea testing, why it's important to do that. Um, I'm going to help you understand the barriers that exist to obtaining testing. I'm going to discuss how I implemented my project uh, and identify the results of the project and then also discuss conclusions. So what my project was, Tara said research. Um, my project was a quality improvement project based on existing evidence. Um, it really wasn't research. I did not conduct research. 
What I did was use evidence studies that had been conducted, research that was available, um, to understand how to improve utilization of chlamydia and gonorrhea testing in the undergraduate student population. So it was, really was utilization of research. Um, in our current um, day and age, there's lots of research constantly going on, but there's a significant lag oftentimes um, between that research and the findings and them um, translating to actual clinical practice. So what a doctor of nursing practice degree does in some situations is help move that, those research findings to actual practice. So I'd like to say a little bit more about quality improvement, what that is, what that looks like. Um, healthcare was a little bit slow compared to some other industries in recognizing the importance and actually making quality improvement a priority. In 2008, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement um, published their triple aim um, for healthcare. And their goal was to provide a format for quality improvement in various healthcare settings, so something that would apply broadly to different settings for healthcare. Um, and the three aims that they identified were better care, healthier people, and smarter spending. So looking at cost, looking at outcomes, and looking at the kind of care that people wanted um, from their healthcare providers. Um, they applied that to a population. Rather than looking at individual problems, they were looking at a population of people um, because that's where we get the most impact when we make changes, is we look at populations rather than individuals. So you might ask why, why this project at EMU, why something that has to do with sexually transmitted infections? Um, I'm the first person to say that topics about sex, sexuality, can be difficult to talk, talk about. They're taboo subjects for some people, um, and even for healthcare providers, they are difficult to talk about. And healthcare providers don't do the best job um, with this area. So I saw it as an important area. Um, but specifically, we can think about biology. What does biology tell us about? the need for this work. Um, biology is a imperative. Reproduction is a imperative to perpetuate our species. That makes sense, right? We can look more specifically at neurobiology. And in the undergraduate population, um, typically I'm looking at the age, ages that are common in the undergraduate student population. We know that the frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until age 24. Right? The frontal lobe is the center for reasoning, judgment, decision making, right? But you add human nature to that because we're all humans. And even if we have fully developed frontal lobes, as human beings, we make mistakes, we don't correctly anticipate consequences, and we make bad decisions. So human nature comes into play. And then development is really important in this age group. So this population, undergraduate students, um, development is really an important thing to consider. Whoop, went too far. 
Whoa, it's going the wrong direction. Hold on here. There we go. Okay. So I went way back to Eric Erickson, the kind of the pioneer when um, we were talking, we learned about developmental tasks. Um, in 1950, he published his kind of original work on this topic. And the two uh, de developmental um, tasks within this, the undergraduate student population, from ages 11 to 19, um, the developmental task was identity versus role confusion, which really places a strong emphasis on social relationships in this age group. The other category that um, undergraduate students fall into um, ages 20 to maybe a little older, not 44 probably, um, was intimacy versus isolation. Um, so here, romantic relationships is um, a fundamental emphasis of development. Um, I think I would disagree with the cutoff of 44 as an interest in romance because I don't think romance ever stops. <laughs> um, but that's what Eric Erickson said. So within this age group, um, these are the two primary developmental tasks um, that apply. Uh, and they heavily influence behavior along with peers. Peers literature tells us that peers are a big factor in decision making for both good and bad in this, in this age group. So peers can have a positive impact or negative impact. Um, and that's important to keep in mind. So there's a study from the American College of uh, Health Association that shows that uh, perception of peers' sexual behavior is important. If a person thinks that their peers are engaging in sex, risky practices, then they may be more likely to engage in similar practices. But the opposite is also true. So if they perceive that their peers um, have responsible behavior um, and the messages on healthy relationships, then they're like more likely to delay becoming sexually active and not engage in risky practices. So some important things in relation to development. So statistics, you knew I would eventually get to some statistics, right? Um, so what does um, the data, what does the literature, what's out there about STIs? Um, well, first of all, the CDC has said that STIs are a significant, under-recognized United States public health crisis. We have a big problem in the US. Um, in 2019, there were 2.5 million new cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Of those 2.5 million new infections, chlamydia accounted for 1.6 million. And then of the 2.5 million cases, half, 1.25 million, were in the ages of 15 to 24 year olds. So the population of people that are most commonly are undergraduate students. Um, the CDC collects data on lots of reportable illnesses, diseases, and keeps records um, to maintain and promote um, proper treatment and recognition of problems. 
Um, they also conduct a survey every two years. It's a risk assessment survey that is done in adolescents and young adults to assess not only sexual behavior, but other uh, practices that may cause risk to this population of people. The last time they did the survey was in 2019. It hasn't been done because of COVID. Interruptions with COVID um, caused um, that to be the last time they did that survey. So STIs, sexually transmitted infections, have some disproportionate effects. And they're important to pay attention to. So this is a slide from the CDC. And you can see that in the middle of this slide, there's a, a bag that says that there are direct costs of $16 billion a year related to sexually transmitted infections. You can see across the bottom that there are a lot of organisms that can cause sexually transmitted infections. Um, and the various direct costs accounted to place for each one. But what's disproportionate about this? Disproportionate um, burden in terms of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. Total direct costs of those infections are $1.1 billion a year. That's the direct cost. That's not emotional cost. That's not stress. That's not anxiety. That's not breakup of relationships and impact on relationships. That's direct health costs. The other things that are disproportionate are that the burden falls heavily on women. So women account for 25% of the direct cost of these infections. And then the other disproportionate factor is young people, 15 to 24. 26% of the impact falls within that age group. So this is a significant health problem in this population, in this age group. The only other infection that causes it has more direct costs is HIV. So, Additional factors that help identify some disproportionate things about sexually transmitted infections. In 2021, the CDC says that 31% of all cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis were among non-Hispanic black persons even though they accounted for only 12% of the population. So disproportionate effect there. We also know from the CDC that men who have sex with men are disproportionately impacted by STIs, particularly gonorrhea and syphilis. What are the consequences? Why does it matter? Why do these infections matter? Why are they important? Um, this is another slide from the CDC. We know that if these infections are not diagnosed, um, they can lead to significant health impacts and severe health problems. So if left untreated, these infections can lead to ectopic pregnancy, pelvic pain, increased risk for HIV, and infertility. So some of these are lifelong potential impacts of these infections. Because of the burden, the disproportionate effects in this population, this age group, because of the significant health impacts potentially, and the significant burden of disease, um, I chose to focus my work on chlamydia and gonorrhea testing. Testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea is readily available. 
and utilizes a non-invasive urine specimen um, that provides accurate results, and these are treatable infections. So the focus that I chose was on chlamydia and gonorrhea. So what are the testing recommendations? If we want to test people, we should know how they need to be tested and when they need to be tested. So the United States Preventative Task Force identifies testing guidelines for people ages 15 to 24. They say that all sexually active women should have annual testing. All men who have sex with men should have annual testing. And testing should be done more frequently depending on risk. So if a person changes partners, if they have multiple partners, um, those are some, some examples of risk factors that may make uh, more frequent testing recommended. What do we know about sexual activity within this population, within this age group? I don't know at EMU. I don't have statistics at EMU. I'll talk more about that later. But I do know that we have lots of information from the CDC and from the American College Health Association who do surveys um, to collect this data. So the CDC estimates that about 40% of people within this age group are sexually active at any point, one point in time. The American College Health Association in 2022 in their survey found that by the time college students graduate, three quarters will be sexually active. So up to 75% of college students by the time they are seniors or graduate. Yet within this population, the CDC also found that only about 10% of people that should have testing for chlamydia and gonorrhea had it. So only 10%, very low. Knowing that testing use is very low, we have to ask ourselves why. What are, what are the reasons that people in this age group don't get tested, don't get the recommended testing? So this is where the literature that I studied, um, reviewed, came into play. Um, the literature identified several barriers. Um, one big barrier centered around lack of awareness. People had misperception of their risk. They thought that they were only at risk or could only have an infection if they had symptoms. We know that's not the case with these infections, that most people don't have, uh, have symptoms of the infection, particularly women. Women often don't have symptoms. So that was a misperception. They also weren't aware of testing recommendations. They didn't know um, what the testing recommendations were. Um, so that was a big area, a big barrier to seeking testing. Um, the other factors that came into play um, centered around testing format, how the test was offered. People wanted the test to be private and confidential, and that includes privacy from parents who may see um, an insurance statement, for example. Um, they wanted tests to be convenient, easily accessible, easy to do, not complicated. They wanted tests without seeing a provider or having an exam. Uh, that was a common thread within the literature. Um, they were also concerned about cost. They wanted tests that were free or low in cost, affordable. 
um, and stigma. Stigma and judgment, fear of stigma and judgment, even from healthcare providers that they saw for testing. That came through in the literature that I reviewed. Um, so these are factors that were identified commonly in multiple studies um, that I reviewed as barriers to obtaining testing. So there's also evidence of what works. And I looked at that. I looked at studies to find, okay, these are the barriers. What works to address these barriers? Well, to raise awareness, there were lots of studies that utilized various methods. So social media, email reminders, formal classroom education, um, campaigns, advertisement. Um, but one of the big things that came through in studies was that involving peers, methods involving peers, were really helpful, very helpful in promoting utilization of recommended testing. Um, peers were found to be people that the individual could relate to, that spoke the same language, that they felt they could understand, rather than going to somebody that's a lot older or an authority figure. So peers came through as a, as a very strong um, way to address some of these barriers in terms of awareness particularly. Um, testing format, what worked there? So the study showed that testing that was self-initiated, that the person, the individual could say, I need a test, I'm gonna go get a test, that they could self-collect, not that they would have to see a provider, provider for. And without a provider appointment. That helps eliminate some of these barriers, these perceived barriers about judgment, about stigma, um, and also make it, them easy to obtain. So chlamydia and gonorrhea tests utilize a non-invasive test that's based on a urine specimen. So they're easily collected by the individual. The individual can say, I need a test, collect a specimen, sent to the lab, get their results. So that was what showed up in the literature. That's what worked. Knowing what the barriers were, what the need was, what worked for some, to address some of the barriers, I wanted to look at where I would be doing this project, if it was gonna work or not. So, Looking at EMU, I used what we call a SWOT analysis. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. So the strengths that I identified was that this was a process that was easy to use. Um, it was based on um, a, a method that was already in place. Health services here at EMU had already offered testing for STI, so it wasn't a new thing. It was something that we were already doing. Um, the fact that health services is a supportive environment that really cares for students was also a big strength that I identified in the project. Weaknesses relate to unknown data, things I didn't know and things I couldn't know about here at, here at EMU, and I'll talk more in a minute about that. Also, um, weaknesses related to cost. How much would it cost to advertise this, to actually do the tests? Students, what, what the literature said, that's, that people wanted um, tests that were free or not expensive. Um, how would I manage that? Um, 
Opportunities I saw were to improve efficiency, improve acceptance, and to reduce barriers to testing. And then the threats um, centered around two things, time. It takes time to do this work. It took time for people in health services to work with me to do the work. It took time for the peer educators that I involved in the work to do the work. So it required a lot of time. And time is in short supply. You all know that just as well as I do. Um, the other threat that I thought about in terms of implementing this project here at EMU was, um, was it culturally and religiously congruent? This is a faith-based institution. How would people perceive this kind of project in an institution that is faith-based? Right? So those were some things that I considered in terms of looking at EMU and how my project would work. So here's that missing data, and these are important caveats in terms of my project. I did not know, I didn't have numbers for how many people um, were sexually active within the undergraduate student population. There was no way I could know that. I also didn't know if students might choose to go somewhere else to get a test when I was looking at data and information. Um, the other factor that had significant impacts kind of across the board in healthcare, in data collection, was the effects of COVID. Um, so those are some important things, some important caveats about my project. Here's some baseline data. Having looked at all of this, considered this, considering the, considered the setting, what I didn't know, what I couldn't know, um, I looked at what I could figure out from the information that I had available. So what I did in terms of the unknown of people who are sexually active here at EMU was I applied this, the percentage identified by the CDC of 40% being sexually active. That's kind of a conservative estimate um, because 40% was what they said, but I also had information from the American College Health Association that said potentially up to 75%. So I felt pretty comfortable applying 40% as the potential sexually active students here at EMU. I went back and had Irene's help um, to look through numbers of tests done in health services in previous years. I had kind of a sense that this was an underutilized um, service, an underutilized aspect of care um, from my work there and from my work as a nurse practitioner. Um, but you can see the number of tests here um, in the, the years that are up there. So 15 tests for 811 students, um, really low percentage of testing especially if you're looking at 40% of those 811 people, uh, students being sexually active. So very low usage here. Um, you can see that the use increased um, in 21-22 um, after COVID. Um, and also I'm speculating here, but that was when um, the peer educators started their work here on campus. So, um, increase there, but still overall pretty low rate of testing here at EMU. So 
project components, what I decided to do based on that information, based on the statistics that I had, based on the information I had, um, was to use methods to raise awareness. My methods to raise awareness were to work with peer educators, um, events, word of mouth. They helped me distribute posters, which is the next strategy on the list. Um, I developed posters, and um, they helped me place posters in all of the bathrooms on EMU and in the dorm bathrooms. Um, so that was probably a half a day's work, running around to different places and hanging up those posters and distributing them. Um, the posters were supported by a grant that I obtained from the Office of DEI. Um, Office of DEI provided funds for me to pay for the posters, and they also provided, um, had some funds, I allocated some of the funding to cover cost of tests if students didn't have insurance, didn't want the test on their insurance, reported on their insurance. I developed a ad for the closed circuit TV here at EMU, and I also had a weather vane article published. As far as the testing process, addressing the barriers there, um, working with health services staff, um, we came up with a process to allow self-initiated, self-collected test with a urine specimen that required no appointment with a provider, which was a change from the, the previous process. Um, previous um, process required an appointment with a provider. Um, test results were all followed up with by a healthcare provider through health services. If tests were negative, the person was informed of their results and education was provided about safer sex practices. Um, and if the test was positive, the individual was treated um, with medication um, prescribed by the provider through health services. I measured the outcomes of these changes that I made um, through several, uh, several methods. So I did a survey, survey um, that assessed the acceptance of the process, how people use the process, um, gender identity and sexual orientation. These questions were asked on a scannable QR code, anonymous, not identifiable, um, but results um, through scanning a QR, QR code. Um, I also did an awareness survey. I wanted to know how people became aware of the self-initiated testing process. Um, so I did a survey for that, uh, again, anonymous. Um, I also looked at the number and percent of chlamydia gonorrhea tests that were used during my project implementation, and that was spring semester. So from January to May, um, I looked at the number of tests that were used during that time period, and I compared that to the number of tests in the previous three years in the same time period. So what were my results? Results you can see up here um, based on numbers from just spring semester um, to compare the time of project implementation to the previous three years. You see an increase in number of tests performed. You see an increased percentage of estimated sexually active students tested, but still really low numbers. So 
remember the CDC said average in this population, this age group is 10%. Um, here at EMU, that number is still below 10%. So still low. Um, got some work to do in this area, I think, um, in terms of that. The acceptance survey, um, I used a Likert scale that asked three questions, questions related to clarity of instructions, um, confidence in the person's ability to collect a specimen, and if they would use the process again. So you can see that the majority of participants said that the instructions were clear, that they felt confident in their collection, um, and everybody, every participant indicated um, that they would be willing to use the process again. Seemed to be accepted pretty well. In terms of gender identity, uh, I had 58% of the participants that did the survey identified as male, 42 as female, and nobody identified as other. The option there was transgender or they could write in other. Sexual orientation, um, the participants that completed the survey, 69% identified as heterosexual, 26% identified as sexual, and 5% identified as gay. No participant that completed the survey identified as lesbian or said they were not sexually active. I don't know who would take a test if they weren't sexually active, but I put the option on there just in case. <laughs> the awareness survey. So how did people learn about this? How did people learn about the availability of testing and the testing process? Um, posters, 40%. So posters did a pretty good job, but pretty close behind that was peer educators and peers. Um, other responses, participants listed luck. <laughs> they were told about it by a nurse in health services. They saw, one person saw the um, closed circuit TV ad, and then the fourth person, for fourth participant um, said that um, a friend told them about it. Nobody came because of the weather vane article. <laughs> So what other insights did I learn? What other things did I find? Um, cost here at EMU did not seem to be a barrier. Even though we asked people that tested um, if they wanted to use their insurance um, and they had other options, everybody that did a test <coughs> used their insurance to pay for the test. So that didn't seem to be such a big barrier here at EMU. Um, I will say that just doing a test, not having a requirement to see a provider automatically decreases the cost. So that's a positive thing. Um, I found that there was some resistance on campus. Um, I had people directly ask me, why are you doing this here? What's this all about? Do you really think you need to do this here? Um, not students, but other people. Um, I also had posters that had been hung in bathrooms that had things written on them. Um, things like sex is between a man and a woman. Sex should only happen after marriage. So some of these things were one of those things. I went back to that thing that I 
thought might happen in terms of cultural and religious congruity um, with the project. Um, Self-initiated, self-collected tests without a provider appointment opened um, additional time for providers to see patients. They didn't have to see people to get a test for chlamydia and gonorrhea, so they had more open appointment times. Um, we had initially thought that students would have to provide the test by 2.30 so we could have LabCorp collect it and take it off, off to be tested, but it turns out once this specimens collected and put in a container that has a preservative, it's stable. So we learned that there's really no time cut off as long as health services is open, that the test can be um, provided. Um, it, with the exception of Friday, that period of time over the weekend's a little too long for that. We also found that it was a pretty efficient process. It worked well. Um, it didn't place an undue burden on the staff at health services in terms of their time or extra work. Uh, and so we decided um, that it was a sustainable thing and it's a service that health services will continue to offer. So that self-initiated, self-collected testing without a provider appointment is something that will be used going forward, which is a good thing. <coughs> So in conclusion, I had um, a summary here. What I think is that a tailored approach to raise awareness and increase STI testing in undergraduate college students really benefits from peer influence and peer involvement. It's a really good thing. Um, and I also say that self-initiated, self-collected tests increase use, reduce barriers, are well accepted, and are sustainable. So very positive things. I would like to thank people um, that were very instrumental and helpful in this process. Um, so thanks to health services staff and Irene as the director. Um, thanks to the peer educator group. Um, and thanks to the Office of DEI for funds that were used to support my project. I have references here that are available. And I'm happy to entertain questions. All right, so Kathy will um, take questions, wait until Rhonda gets to you with the microphone. Um, so go ahead and formulate your questions, raise your hand, and while that happens, Kathy, will the posters be back? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I noticed that that was how a lot of folks found the, I know. the option, and so I wondered if you would want to bring them back again. Yeah, that's a good question. I think I would like to, I don't, yeah. yeah. I think it's good. Okay. Hi, Kathy. First of all, it's good Hi. to see you. <laughs> um, do you think the reason why the um, like need for women to get tested more so is because of their lack of symptoms present at time of infection? I think that there are anatomical um, 
aspects of um, women that make them more susceptible to infections. Um, it's just an anatomical reality. Yeah. Um, exposure to things um, is much more likely to actually cause an infection in a woman than it is mm -hmm. in a male, um, just for anatomical reasons. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. That kind of goes with my question, is why aren't men recommended to get annual testing as well? <laughs> um, we, we would like to do that, but we just don't have the evidence to support that recommendation. Yeah. We're just running the gambit here. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned that EMU doesn't have statistics currently on the actual number of sexually active students on campus. Are there potential plans or ways that that could be remedied just so you could have that data or? That's a good question. I don't know. That would be a, a survey that um, would have to be approved um, and students would have to feel confident in completing and answering, um, knowing that they would be anonymous, right? Yeah. It'd be nice to know that information. <laughs> Are you pointing? I thought you were pointing at someone. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. Um, I've seen this presentation in a couple different formats and you did an excellent job. Um, and I apologize if my question you covered while I was out of the room doing some uh, I had to deal with some immediate business, but um, sustainability. Um, definitely the question about survey is, is really important. Oh, and by the way, Tara, there is a sign in the men's bathroom over here. So, so it never left, so, and you, I know, you, we won't go there. Um, anyway, sustainability of the testing over time, what will it take to um, continue it on a regular basis to keep the energy up, yes, the signs. And a second part of the question, I thought you, you implemented in this past winter semester, right? 2023. From January to May. But there was a Correct. bump in, in 2022, there was a pretty significant jump. And yeah. any ideas on why that happened? Uh, that might have been when you were out. I, I speculate, total speculation. Um, first of all, COVID was pretty much out of the picture. Um, and then um, it was when the peer educator group started to be active on campus. And there were events and things that discussed sexually transmitted infections, um, sexual, you know, healthy sexual relationships, those sorts of things. Um, sustainability, the service is pretty seamless as far as the health services perspective. My bigger concern with sustainability relates to um, the fact that we don't do a good job talking about sexual health, reproductive health, um, any sort of discussion on that um, at EMU. We don't do a lot with that. Um, and I think that's an area um, that could, could benefit for us from some more work. Um, it's kind of hard to think about sexually transmitted infections in the abstract when you don't talk about healthy sexual relationships, right? Um, because 
You need that connection, I think. That's my personal opinion. Um, so I think that's an important component that um, is missing um, and could receive more emphasis. Yeah. There's lots of health risks from a population perspective. Um, sexual health is one of them in this age group, but things like uh, substance and alcohol use, um, motor vehicle accidents, safety, preventing motor vehicle accidents, <coughs> preventing suicide. These are big population health issues in this age group. Um, and I think they could benefit from additional emphasis and time spent discussing them on campus. Um, and I think involving peers in doing some of that work would just be the best option of all. I'll just make a comment going back to this type of um, university, you know, with a Christian emphasis. When I started as director in health services in 2015, there were no condoms available. And um, that was one of the first things that I was asked, would I make those available? And I said it would not make sense not to. And so since that time, we've always had condoms available in the waiting room and in each of our uh, rooms readily accessible. And I know there's been more things done um, in the different dormitories as well, so residence halls. So I think it's accepting that this is happening and working with it and educating people. Yeah, I think that we, we really do our students um, a disservice. Uh, in terms of their health, in terms of you know, long-term life consequences if we don't, if we fail to address some of these issues. If we say they're not happening, I don't want to think about it, I'm going to stick my head in the sand, um, we're not doing them a service. So it's, it's hard work, it's difficult, these are not easy topics to talk about, um, but they're important. One thing I failed to mention, I think a lot of students aren't aware either, that we do a lot of counseling as far as birth control and that kind of thing and offer those services to students who come to campus and maybe weren't able to get birth control at home um, for various reasons. And also, if students are already have birth control, like the depot shots, that we do continue those here as well. So we have a lot of services like that that I don't think some of the students are aware of. Yeah. EMU is really, really blessed, really fortunate to have uh, health services here on campus because many places, especially smaller private colleges, have offloaded those or sent, send students elsewhere. So we are really, really fortunate. Thinking about uh, the barrier and and uh, the more we don't talk about it, the larger the stigma gets, the more people don't get tested, the way that it impacts their mental health. When you listed all of the barriers, I wonder if some of the barriers um, are linked more with specific genders. Do women feel more shame or more stigma versus men or non-binary? Like, is there any separation of those barriers based on that? 
Um, what I saw in the literature, um, not so much based on male or female, but definitely based on sexual orientation. <clears throat> so people who um, have sexual orientation other than heterosexual definitely have much more of an uphill climb in terms of dealing with stigma and feeling that they're judged um, for behavior. Um, and as I said, that comes through um, in healthcare providers' approach to people as well, which is really sad. That made me sad um, to, to actually see that in the literature. Um, but it's, it's a reality, and it's something we need to own, and we need to, to do better. Yeah. Kathy, what do you think I can do as a future nurse, like, within two years, I'm going to be practicing. What can I do to, like, better this situation? I think work to educate the people that you have contact with, that you have influence, um, the relationships that you have influence in. Um, I think as a nurse, if there's any other nurses in the audience, they can all say that um, they become consults for people, for family members, for other people. Well, I have this or I have that. What would you do with this? What do you think this is? Use your influence. Educate. Education's huge. It's not necessarily a question, but just um, for students and anyone in the room thinking about like, how do you approach this subject with a partner? Like, how do you say to somebody, hey, when was the last time you were tested? Um, because having those conversations will encourage people and take that stigma away and also help you protect yourself. Um, so just having that conversation with other people and adults and just asking like, how do I approach this topic and make sure that I'm keeping myself safe and moving the conversation forward? Yeah. And I agree, the more we talk about it, the easier it becomes to talk about it. My approach, just from my background and my perspective, my firm belief is that we shouldn't separate out sexual health from any other aspect of health. Um, it's just as important um, and important to talk about and recognize. Well, thank you, Kathy. That was very educational, and <laughs> I appreciate your work on our campus. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>